All right, Philippians chapter 2. And last week's message uh, on chapter 1 focused on two things. Do you remember what they were? If you were here, you might remember. They were partnership and persecution. Partnership and persecution. These themes are developed further in these upcoming chapters. And Paul tells the Philippians last week at the end of the message, uh, we pointed out where he tells them, don't run scared. Things are going to happen either to Paul or to you. No matter what happens to them, they are to, in verse 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He gives them that advice. No matter what happens, and it's likely that bad stuff's going to happen, no matter what happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. One thing that you might hear at church, specifically in a holiness denomination such as the Church of Nazarene, is the desire and the pursuit of being Christ-like. Christ-like. Understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. And our denomination has summarized the Great Commission. You might know that uh, bit of scripture. They've summarized it for us into our core values. I mean, if there's anything else that your church is going to be about, why not the Great Commission? Our core values, Christian, holiness, and missional. Or, putting in a little bit of a longer phrase, our goal is to make make Christ-like disciples in the nation, in the nations. And so if we pursue something like Christ-likeness for others, as well as for us, guess what? It must actually be possible. It must actually be possible. So I want to start with that presupposition. Christ-likeness is possible. If that's, if that's, I hope I can change your mind if you don't agree at the beginning of this message, but I have to start there because that's where our teachings have started. That's where um, it's a presupposition of all of this. He's not going to ask you to be something and tell you you need to be this and it not be possible. Paul lays it all out for them in chapter 2. Uh, verses one, two, 1 through 2, it says this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Let's stop right there for a moment. I'm not the best at English or grammar, whatever it is. In fact, when I come home and I ask about homeschool and I'm like, did you have grammar or English? I don't know the difference. That's how bad I am at it. But what Paul uses here regardless of the school class we're talking about, is what's known as an if-then statement. If-then, okay? So let me give you a couple if-then scenarios that you might be familiar with. If I don't eat breakfast before church on Sunday, then I will be hungry during the sermon, (laughs) okay? The sermon is starting a lot closer to your lunch, so hopefully it'll be... uh, It'll be a quick one here, but you might be familiar with these statements in contractual agreements. If you rent a piece of property, like a house or an apartment, uh, if, if I keep paying rent, then I can keep staying in my apartment. If, then, 
That's what he's setting up here, whatever the scenario is. And I know contractual agreements and logical conclusions about breakfast, that's riveting stuff. Really great way to start off a sermon. Thank you very much. But these kinds of conditions are used in something else, something that maybe you really enjoy, maybe you stay away from. I know my generation are very excited about this stuff. My daughter's generation really is saturated in it. It's called computer programming, okay? We wouldn't have video games and computers, wouldn't have most of the media choices that we have today if it weren't for computer programming. Computer programming uses if-then statements, if-then clauses in its program. So for instance, um, think about this as a video game. If the player, the human interaction, pushes the left arrow on their keyboard, then their player moves to the left. Or you could actually apply this rule to a character that they would interact with that's called a non-player character. Um, If the skeleton, the creature, sees the player, if then, then the skeleton shoots an arrow at the player. All right? That is an if-then programming statement. I wanted to have this whole thing because we actually did a computer programming thing, but you can picture it. You know what words are. You understand. If-then. So, so what are these if-then statements that Paul says? Paul says, if you have any of these things at all, if you have encouragement from being united with Christ, comfort from his love, fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then... If any of these are true or correct, then make my, Paul, make his joy complete. Make his joy complete. So how can the Philippians then make his joy complete? So if all of these things are true, then do this thing. What does it take to do the thing to make his joy complete? And he, and he, clear, he clarifies it for them. He clarifies it for him. He says, be like-minded, have the same love, and one in spirit and purpose. And essentially, if you look at all of those, what they have in common is this word unity. Now, I'm not extrapolating all of unity today. Um, We've had conversations recently about what it actually means to be unified. And in fact, that book study, we just talked about it on Tuesday concerning trying to be, can we be unified, but like still affirming or not affirming. And we came to some really good conclusions. I'll talk to you about it later. But essentially what Paul is saying is you need to be unified. There's a very important reason he is pointing this word out to us today and to his audience originally. He wants them to move the same way over the same purpose. Because when two people don't, well, they're not walking together anymore, right? Then he begins to flesh out what it looks like. It looks like having the same attitude that Jesus had. Having the same attitude. And this is like... A very, very, um, I would say popular. It's a very important piece of scripture here because I don't understand why my Bible indents it as if it's a quotation like it does in other sections, a quotation of scripture, but it seems very much like it, it was a common saying or common teaching. And when you go to verse uh, six, uh, we'll just start with verse five. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he starts off with verse six who being in, the, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, 
he humbled himself and began and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under earth every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Um, Yeah, verses, verses 6, 7, and 8 just really hit that hard. Verse 8, being, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. And it always mystifies me right here. He, Jesus, was in very nature, who? God. He was in very nature God. Paul spells that out for us. And even him... Even Jesus didn't see it as something to be used as his own, to his own advantage. The older NIV says something to be grasped, but it basically means something for his own purposes. You know, there's a lot of people who get lots of work and jobs because of their last name, okay? They get popularity because of their last name, because of who their daddy was or their granddaddy or something like that. Jesus didn't play that card, Okay, he didn't use his God nature to his own advantage. Another interesting thing is in verse eight, when it talks about his appearance and being found in appearance as man. And as we've just read in his very nature, God, but he was found as the appearance of man. And that made me think of some other time when God said something about likeness or appearance Yeah, all right. It was in Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 27. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here we have in verse 8, what we have in verse 8 is kind of full circle situation in Christ. He made mankind in his image. He was in nature God, and he was found in appearance as man. And yet, he did all of these things, and what? He humbled himself. He became obedient to the most disgraceful death, crucifixion. So far, it's an elaborate way to express an extreme humility of Christ. Paul says this is what we pursue when we pursue Christ-likeness. We pursue radical humility. Radical humility. Let's take a look at that verse 9 again. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Jesus was honored because as a result of this radical humility, God lifted him up high. He exalted him. And this is not to say that the Philippians will be exalted just like Jesus, but rather that following the attitude of Christ, being Christ-like, has natural positive outcomes. 
it's not, I was thinking about it, it's not the carrot or the stick. I don't know if you were raised this way. Um, the carrot is the thing that you really want and your parents bring it along and here, you do this and you'll get this. You come over here and sit for a moment and I'll get you your treat. Well, like you're a pet or something like that. To be honest, some people parent that way. Or literally the stick. If you, you don't need me to describe it, but you understand. There's a carrot and there's a stick. But neither one of these have any place in the situation. See, it was what God did for his son. And before that, a description of what the son did in obedience to his father. His father did this for him. His son did that for his father. In, uh, this is instruction, but it's also encouragement to once again endure persecution. We talk about his crucifixion. Paul's saying, hey, endure persecution. We talked about that last week. Endure and rise above the trials you're going to face. We look at verse 12 and 13. It says this, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works it in you to will and to act in order to fulfill the good purpose, his good purpose. Verse 12 trips people up sometimes. I don't know if it's tripped you up if you've taken a double take when you've read this in the Bible and you go, what is he saying? Or you hear somebody get up at a pulpit and they preach a works righteousness based on this one verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Well, one thing that I I learned as I was looking over commentary, because this is a very confusing, can be a confusing passage. When somebody says work it out, you expect, okay, well, it means that I need to, I need to do stuff in order to get salvation or to better understand my salvation. The term used here, work it out, it means to see to completion. Uh, Let me give you some scenarios. Uh, Are you a completionist? Perhaps you like reading only half a book. Do you like reading only half a book and then just putting it down? I'm getting dirty looks from my children. It's wonderful. Um, It was totally expected. What about watching only partial movie series? If you didn't finish the entire movie series that you were wanting to watch, how much would that hurt? Or only halfway through and we never watch it again. Um, What about half a sports game? I mean, if you know that your team's going to lose and maybe you go do something more productive... But what if they don't? What if they come back at the end? You'll miss it. Completionists. Uh, I don't know if this is going to work. I wanted to do this before I start talking about sports and things. So this is a C chord. Okay? Nice little classic C chord. We do something like this. I'm not good with numbers, but I know that was a C chord. If I don't, if I don't do what's called resolve it, and I just let leave this hanging out there, what a wonderful way to end this song. Everybody's gonna be so excited. I walk away from the piano and you're like, get back over there. My brain doesn't like that sound. And then you play that. It resolves. It's complete. You hear that? Sorry about that. Anyway, you got your diminished and all those things. It needs to resolve. 
If we hear that in a song and the song cuts off on the radio and you're like, oh, I need that song to finish. And, and musicians have used this really well to actually irritate their audience to get their attention um, because we're wired for this kind of completion feel, for this resolution feel. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Doesn't mean you earn your salvation by doing good works. It means you need to see it to completion. See, salvation is at hand. Paul instructs us to see it through to completion. And it's so important, and we want to get it right, we should be fearful of being nonchalant about it. Eh, I get to heaven eventually. Eh, well, you know, it's, it's all right. I'm okay. I go to church. That's a nonchalant attitude. We should be very chalant about our faith in Christ. All right? Paul's application for these directions lead to one superseding direction. What is that superseding direction? Get ready for it. Don't argue or complain. Everybody loves this one. Don't argue or complain. Boy, if we could get this to work in our families or our friendships, life would be a lot better. Side note, who's the only people we can control? Ourselves. So when he gives this direction, it's not for us to say to somebody else. Though I'm standing up here saying it to you, I'm just reading the Bible, okay? Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. This could mean for you or I that as we do various tasks, I mentioned this earlier, we're not grumbling and complaining. As I'm vacuuming at the church or cleaning toilets, I'm not grumbling or complaining. While I'm being persecuted for my faith, Kind of hard not to grumble and complain, but it says don't grumble and complain. When I'm having a a board meeting or a discussion in Sunday school or a Bible study, I'm not grumbling or complaining. This is back to the unity in the body of Christ. The like-mindedness. The looking to the interests of others. So spoiler alert here, I think Paul is not just setting up a general instruction for the whole of the church. A lot of times, this is is a lot of good information. Paul says, I want you all to do this thing. I want you to be on the same page. Sometimes when people present that information, it's very good and very good and instructive. But usually there's a catalyst. There's something I specifically want to see happen as a result of me talking about all this. I believe we find that if we jump a couple chapters forward in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So I'm going to read that for us right now. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, the brothers term, by the way, meant believers in general. And we knew that women and and, uh, men were there. And so a more uh, recent NIV says brothers and sisters. So don't be alarmed. It's just describing what the word meant. You whom I love and long for. My joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, probably not pronouncing her name right, and I plead with Syntyche, also probably not the right sounds, 
to be of the same mind in the Lord. I want you two ladies to be Christ-like, okay? That is what he's saying to them, okay? He said, verse three, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. What does Christ-likeness look like? Sometimes it resembles you trying to make peace between people. Paul says to some unknown person, lots of speculation about who this true companion might be, but there's one thing for sure, it was one person. A lot of times throughout this scripture, he'll say brothers, which carried the weight of the fellows, fellows in, that, um, in the work in the gospel. Brothers and sisters may more accurately describe it, but this was a real practical conflict that was causing problems in the church. These women, however, both supported Paul. They contended at his side. They were supporters in ministry, as we looked at last week. But sometimes it's, it is not a big Richter scale shifting act that changes everything, but rather faithfulness to the gospel and encouraging others in every single day. This Christ-like conflict resolution, making peace between people, a simple thing that whomever this person was that Paul was calling on, could have been the person that he sent the letter with, by the way, he expected this situation to be settled. Help them get along. Help them to learn what Christ-likeness is. He sets it up in chapter two and he executes on it here in chapter four. I want them who are so much ministry partners, I want them to connect. I want them to resolve and be peaceable to each other, to love and treat each other like Christ loved us. Today, I wanna, I wanna jump back a little bit to uh, chapter two, verses 16 through 18, as we conclude. It says this, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The attitude of Christ that we hear expressed through Paul is one of being poured out as a sacrifice. Um, I don't know if you've ever like poured a drink for somebody, possibly some orange juice or something like that, and you pour it in a cup, right? You could drink it out of the pitcher if you really wanted to, but you usually pour it into a cup. And you hand that cup to them, and then they drink out of that cup, and they might finish it, and you clean the cup, and you put it away after it's done. What you usually don't do is take that orange juice pitcher and just pour it on the floor in front of them. What a waste of orange juice. What a waste of our carpet. Now I gotta clean it up. This is the difference in the description of a poured out sacrifice, a drink offering. Nobody was drinking this offering. It was a drink and it was poured out. Poured out as a sacrifice. You see, the sacrificial system, interestingly enough, the burnt animals, part of that still went to feed the priests. And we have lots of examples throughout the Old Testament talking about that. 
that was given to them as their share. But a drink offering poured out, what are they going to do? Lick the altar? That's really not cool. It's all gone. It's, it's poured out over where it was sacrificed. When you pour out something, it's not savable. It goes all on the altar. When Christ spilt his blood for the whole world, talking about being Christ-like, here's the picture. For those who would accept him, he poured out his blood, and those who would reject him, he poured out his blood. Paul's attitude is like Jesus, fully all in, fully all in and poured out for the sake of of ministry to the Philippians and with the Philippians and for Christ. So my question to you today, we're wondering about what Christ-likeness really means. It means to be completely poured out. It means to be completely all in. All in in the attitude of Christ. And so my question to you is, are you poured out? Are you all in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As we ponder these questions today, what's our commitment level to you? What's our willingness and openness to go and do what you've called us to go and do? Will we listen to you when you say go and do? To make peace, to contend by somebody's side, to share in the costs and the risks inherent in ministry? to be blessed with the benefits as we looked at last week? What does it take for us to be Christ-like? Takes you working in us and us being open to it and saying, I am all yours, Jesus. I'm poured out for your purposes today. And Lord, as we ponder our ministry here, Lord, as we want to continue to introduce people to their fresh start in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would not only equip us for those moments where you bring somebody to us, but that you will bring somebody to us. That we will believe in faith that you have brought them and that we can share the love of Jesus Christ in a way that just is, this isn't about me. I'm all, on the, I'm all in. I'm poured out for Jesus. I pray that you would help our hearts and attitudes change radically and continually, bit by bit, each and every day. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.